0: Lord, we, we come to you and we are so thankful that you've been so good to us, to give us a place to, to gather and worship. And that's why we gather, Lord. We want to declare your worth to us. We, we, we love you and we want to honor you and exalt the name of the Lord Jesus, our Savior. And we're so thankful too for the wonderful gift of your word. Um, it's so important that we know it. That we study it, that we read it, that we could think the way that you think about life. And this life is very confusing um, and, and just so disheartening without you and your word. So thank you that we can now go into your word together and be encouraged as we look at you and how great you are. So help us to understand it. In your great name we pray. Amen. So it's been five weeks since we've been in the Book of Romans together. And, and so I thought it'd be good. Review's always good. Helps us to remember. Like we remember the Lord every week. It's always good. So we're going to do just a quick review of this this letter, where we've been so that we know where we're at and where we're going in this letter. So this this letter to the church in Rome and is consequently a letter to all churches Certainly, God intended it that way. But it is Paul's detailed explanation of the doctrine of salvation. That it is his explanation of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which he declares in the theme of the letter in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, uh, that he was not ashamed of it. He was not ashamed of the gospel. And there's a reason he wasn't ashamed, and we shouldn't be ashamed either, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. How do you, how, how do you, how do you get right with God? The gospel. And it powerfully changes you from the inside out. It transforms you. Uh, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, or how to have a right relationship with God is revealed. And it comes by faith, under faith, or by faith, through faith, the different way it's translated, but the gospel is God's power to save, and that's what this letter is all about. Now, we might ask ourselves, why do we need right relationship with God? Don't we already have that? We live in a, <laughs> I say this jokingly, sadly, we live in a Christian nation? Not so, not so. But uh, it's like, don't, don't we have a right relationship with God already? Isn't that how we kind of start out? Like, no, 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 no. We don't have a right relationship with God. In fact, we are all enter into, in, entering into this world as sinners. Three times over, we're sinners. We're sinners by virtue of our participation with Adam and his act of defiance Against God in the garden, he was our federal head. He acted for us, just like our federal head acts for us in the United States as well. He acted for us, and we participated in his sin that way. So his sin was imputed to us. It was reckoned to us, put on our account. So we're sinners that way. We're sinners by virtue of natural childbirth. Our parents were sinners, and so we became sinners. Sinners give birth to sinners, And then thirdly, we are sinners because we choose to disobey God. We're sinners three times over. Imputed sin, inherited sin, and practical sin. And so we need a right relationship with God. Because we all are sinners. So there's one word that sums up the first major section of the letter, which is chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. That one word is? Not... Come on now, come on! You've been here. Most of you have been here. That one word—it starts with the C. Starts with the C. That's it. Condemnation. We're all condemned because we're sinners, and that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you're this pagan idolater, or you're your so-called atheist, or an agnostic, or whatever. You're a vile person in the eyes of most others. Or you're a really religious person who follows certain religious codes. All are born sinners, have imputed sin on their account, and they do sin, so they are condemned. The second major section, when it goes from 321 through 521, can be summed up also with one word, and that word starts with the J. You know what that sounded like to me? It's like blah, 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 blah justification. I know someone was saying that. Justification, which, by the way, doesn't mean just as if I never sinned, because that would be a game, right? We all sin. So it's not just as if I never sinned. It is God declaring guilty sinners righteous. That's what justification is. God's declaration of a sinner that he is now seen as righteous in his sight, and that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what that section is all about. God satisfied his own judicial wrath toward us through the death of his son. He put him forth as a propitiation for our sins, and he redeemed us by sacrificing his own life and rising from the dead so that we could be declared righteous in God's sight. He reconciled us to God, those who were irreconcilable apart from that. And it all comes by faith in Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We were enemies. We were sinners. We were helpless. And we were irreconcilable. And God changed all of that through faith in Jesus Christ. He declares us righteous. Hallelujah. That's how we get God's righteousness. How we get right with God condemnation, justification. The third major section of the letter, chapters 6 through 8, can also be summed up in one theological word. It starts with an S. Yeah, you're speaking with more confidence now. Sanctification. What does that word mean? Well, it means this. God sets us apart from our sin unto Him to be used for His glory and purposes. That's ultimately, what that word means. And Paul explains in that section some wonderful things. It's, it's really the implication of what happens when you're justified by faith. The first is chapter 6, where he says, you're no longer dead in sin, under sin, but you are dead to sin. It no longer has the power over you, and its penalty is no longer on your account because of your union with Christ through faith in Him. You died with Him, you were buried with Him, and you rose again to new life in Him, dead to sin. Chapter 7 was, you are dead to the the law. That's right. Dead to its penalty and to its power. Uh, Its penalty was condemnation. Its power was seen in that it it would convince you, if you obey me, you'll be right with God. But the problem, as Paul shows in that chapter, is no one can can keep the law. Try they, as they will. Try as hard as they will. They can't keep it. They end up feeling guilty and shameful and so on, like a dead man hanging on your back. It's carrying around this death, this penalty, and its power over you is great. But in Christ, you are no longer dead in the law, or under the law, you are dead to the law. It no longer has that power over you. And then chapter 8 was the wonderful news that we are alive in the spirit. spirit. That's right, alive in the spirit. That's where the change happens. When we place our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into us, indwells us permanently, and he begins to change us from the inside out what we could no longer, or what we could never do, uh, which was keeping the law, now we can. Did you you know that? Now we can. We can actually keep the law in the Spirit. That's what he says. Uh, There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. God did send in his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law could be fulfilled in us. And then he goes on to explain that. And he explains how the Spirit of God changes the way that we think. He leads us. He keeps on telling us over and over again, you are the children of God. Hey, you are heirs of God. Co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And you have the great inheritance of glory awaiting you. We kind of ended the letter with the wonderful news. Nothing, absolutely nothing, I say it again, nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So condemnation, justification, sanctification. And now we come to where we're at in Romans chapters 9 through 11. It's the next major section of the book. And it too can be summed up in one word. I doubt that many of you will remember this one word. It was so long ago, five weeks. Uh, it starts with a B, and it is the word vindication. Vindication. And what Paul's doing in chapters 9 through 11 is ultimately he is vindicating God's dealings with the Jewish people and the Gentiles. He's explaining in detail how God saves people who are Jewish, and how God saves people who are Gentiles. Something that would have blown the mind, particularly of the Jews. And and, and the reason he needs to vindicate God this way is because of the Jewish question. So throughout the letter, what we saw over and over again is Paul uses what is called the straw man. And the straw man is a Jewish, could be Christian, Maybe not a Christian, but a a Jewish objector. And Paul puts in the letter certain things that the Jew would say as he listened to or read what Paul was writing about the gospel and how one gets right with God. It continually raised these questions among them, like in chapter 6. What shall we say? Paul, it sounds like from what you said, we don't have to worry about the law at all. So what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Uh, You know, things like that. He's not asking those questions for himself. He's raising the questions that the Jewish objector would raise. And that's what he does in chapter 9 as well. He raises more questions, particularly by the Jewish audience, uh, about God and how he works it where Jews and Gentiles are brought into one body to the glory of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so he started out in chapter 9 talking about his his broken heart over the condition of the Jewish people that most of them were not saved, that they were not coming to faith in Christ. They were holding on to the law, holding on to their rituals, and so on. And he he just lays it out. I I wish that I could even be uh, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. The kinsmen, according to the flesh. And, and, And he explains that. He says, they had such great privileges, but it didn't guarantee their salvation. And that was... Verses four and five, you know, where where he says that they they were Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and and from their race, according to the to the flesh, according to human birth, is the Christ, the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. So he he's saying it's a sad thing for him as he considers. the the bulk of the Jewish nation so far was rejecting the gospel. And it it just broke his heart. But then he wanted to deal with this question that would come up in the mind of the Jews, where it was kind of like, but Paul, with all that you're saying, uh, it seems like you're implying that the word of God has failed, that God's promises to the Jewish nation, uh, you know, aren't coming true, and so consequently, God isn't able to do what he promised he would do. verse 6, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. And then he goes on to explain why it is not as though the word of God failed. And, and, And what he explains is that regardless of all those privileges and and promises that, you know, they had the the bulk of the nation rejected the gospel. And part of the reason for that is because God never intended that the whole Jewish race would be saved, that every Jew would be saved. Salvation, he says, is not determined by physical birth, and it is according to promise, not by physical descendancy. I mean, they they thought that, well, they were Abraham's descendants, so they were okay with God. And he says, no, it's not by physical birth. It is according to God's promise to Abraham, which wasn't to all of his descendants, but only some of his descendants. He brings in Isaac and Ishmael, and he says, Ishmael, you know, the the son that he had with Hagar, the the maidservant of Sarah, he wasn't the child of promise. Isaac was the child of promise. So only there, it's like only half of his descendants would actually be considered children of the promise. And he says also that it's not determined by behavior in verses 10 and 11. In chapter 9, he says, Not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So here you go from Abraham to Isaac, and Isaac had two sons as well. They were twins, born of the same sexual act, and yet, he says, it was Jacob that God loved. That God blessed, that the promise would come through, not through Esau, which was kind of opposite of what one might think, because Esau was the first one to come out, which would make him the firstborn, which would make him the more privileged. And God said, "No, it wasn't. It wasn't that way. It isn't according to their behavior." It says regardless of what they would do, it was before they had a chance to do anything good or bad. So it wasn't determined by behavior, but rather he says that God's sovereign election of people is determined by his purpose of election and that's what the verse said though they had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue God's purpose in his choosing of people is what was critical And then he says in in verse 11 also that it was according to his calling. So it wasn't by physical birth, and it, it was according to promise, and it was not by behavior, but according to God's purpose of election and his calling. So God purposed to choose certain people, and then he calls them in time. The effectual call of God, drawing them to understand that they're a sinner that needs a Savior, and that that Savior is Jesus Christ. So that's kind of a sum of where we have been up to this point. But before we go on uh, further in chapter 9, let me just suggest to you the problem of trying to put God in a box. Trying to put God in a box. And what I mean by that, uh, let me ask you, have you ever had an experience where you've had a bunch of stuff and you, you need to try to get fit it into a box? Or maybe it's a bag. Maybe it's a suitcase, you know, and it's like, okay, it's not all going to go in there, and you push, and you shove, and you push, and you shove, and you grab another thing, and you push it in there, and if you push too hard, the box breaks apart, breaks apart at the seams, or the bag does, or maybe the suitcase does, but, or maybe it's just you that break apart at the seams. You know, you get so frustrated at it and trying to fit all this stuff in the the box, but it just won't fit in the box. And that's the kind of problem that we face when we come to Romans 9, 10, 11, where we see the apostle Paul going into great detail to explain why uh, why apparently the bulk of the nation has rejected the gospel. Why it is that the, the majority of the Jews were not saved and were on their way to facing God's eternal wrath, his judgment. And Paul's explanation of the problem in a nutshell is that God in his sovereign plan of salvation never chose all the Jews to be saved. That's what we've seen so far in the first 13 verses. However, when we are confronted with this, we're reading long, rejoicing in Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, hallelujah, we say at the end of chapter 8, and then we read 9, we're confronted with chapter 9, and we tend to recoil at its implications. Right? Let's be honest about that. When we read it, it's like, oh, wow, that just doesn't sound right. As one commentator put it, this is that part of Scripture where man's mind rebels more than anywhere else. And the reason this is so is because the majority of people grow up working at having a very safe and easy to understand God. They, they want to be able to explain God, they, and, that, and that's what they work hard at. They diligently labor at fitting God into, into their little theological box and being very comfortable with the result. I mean, he fits just fine all the way through chapter 8. And then we get to chapter 9, and we begin to realize that we can't fit God into our little theological box that has been so comfortable. Our theological box can never contain God, for he cannot be fully understood by the finite. The infinite cannot be fully comprehended by the finite. He can't be understood by those that he himself created. And, and, and the more we try to fit God into our theological box, we kind of see our box begin to split apart at the seams. Or maybe that's just us splitting apart at the seams, so to speak. God is just too big for our teeny-weeny little box. Now, let me remind you at this point that the doctrine that I'm referring to that kind of blows our mind, breaks apart our theological box, is the doctrine of divine, sovereign election. And let, me, let me just throw in here for a moment. There, there, there have been churches that preach through the book of Romans, and when they get to Romans chapter 9 through 11, they skip it. They go from chapter 8 to chapter 12. They don't even want to cover this because it it, it breaks their little theological box. Of course, we're committed to going through the scripture line by line. and, And so consequently, we're willing to face our boxes getting stretched and perhaps breaking at the seams a little bit. Hopefully, God will just put our boxes back together and then expand them so that he fits in the box that he himself is. And we'll understand that. So... God, uh, you know, has this revealed doctrine that is so clear in Romans that he is sovereign over the salvation of sinners. Divine, sovereign election. That, that essentially means that God sovereignly and graciously, apart from any foreseen merit or even belief, right? Any foreseen merit or belief shows grace and mercy to certain individuals who be the recipients of his glory forever. That's divine sovereign election. And if Romans 9 through 11 was the only place in the Bible where this doctrine was taught, well, then we might work harder at trying to find some explanation of election, something that would fit more comfortably into our little box, but it's not the only place in Scripture. It's not the only place in Scripture that stresses this truth. So we're going to look at a few other New Testament passages. Now, that's not to say it's not found in the Old Testament. It is. And it's not to say that the verses I'm going to cover are the only ones that cover it, because we've already read some of them this morning in First Corinthians chapter 1, a passage that Chris wrote read. There was divine sovereign election in God not choosing the rich or the powerful or the wise, but rather choosing the poor, the weak, uh, the lame, the things that are not to shame the things that are. That's divine sovereign election there as well. But that's not one of the passages I want to look at. So let's look at a few other New Testament passages that, that support what Paul's saying in our text in Romans 9. So, John six thirty seven says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So this is Jesus' sermon that he's giving, that he is the bread of life, and he says very clearly here, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Now, Notice it's not reversed. We come to Christ, and then the Father gives us to Christ. No. It's whoever the Father gives to the Son will, in time, come to the Son. And whoever comes, he says, he will never cast out. They're secure. Nothing can ever separate them from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. In the same chapter, in verse 44, it says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Draws him or her, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, notice this. No one can come. No one. No one. Not a single individual can come to Christ unless the Father is drawing them. You could even include the idea of dragging them to the Son. Because some resist a little bit. More than others, but when the father 's got the pole on, you're coming one way or the other. It's called irresistible grace, irresistible grace. and again, security, and I will raise about up on the last day, when you come to Christ, because you 've been drawn by the Father to the Son, you're secured there until the last day. Well, what the last day is no problem because you get resurrected into eternal life, right? So security there too. Acts 13 and verse 48, Paul's preaching in a Gentile, to a Gentile group in, in his first missionary journey, and, and it says there, and when the Gentiles heard this, the gospel, and, and the progress of the gospel among other Gentile people, when they heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. What word of the Lord? Well, it's the gospel, right? They began glorifying the gospel truth. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, notice it's not the reverse. They didn't believe and then get appointed to eternal life. They were appointed by God, and consequently, in time when they heard the gospel, they believed. The order is very important. Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 3 through 5. Oh, just rejoice, beloved, in these verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us before what? The foundation of the world. That means before creation. Before Genesis 1 1 and 2. Right? He already chose us. Hmm. Wow. And he chose us with a purpose that we should be in time holy and blameless before him. In other words, in time we hear the gospel, we respond to it. God's choosing of us, his drawing of us, his calling of us, leads to us becoming a person in Christ who is holy and blameless before him. That's why God can declare us righteous in his eyes, because in Christ we are. We are. In love, he, here's another great word, predestined, marked out beforehand. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons of, through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. He predestined us, he chose us, and he did all of this according to his own divine sovereign will, right? Second Thessalonians chapter two, and verse thirteen. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. He's talking to these Gentile believers in Thessalonica. And he says, We ought to give thanks to you, uh, beloved by the Lord, because here's the reason why because God chose you. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. That doesn't mean the first ever to hear the gospel and respond, because there were many on the day of Pentecost, over 3,000 that responded. He means among Gentile converts. You were some of the first fruits of the Gentiles to be saved. How were they saved? Through sanctification by the Spirit, that's Romans eight, isn't it? Being made alive by the Spirit, sanctified, set apart by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Why did we get sanctified by the Spirit and believe in the truth? Because God chose us to be that way. Second Timothy chapter one and verse nine. God saved us and called us with a holy calling. Listen well. Not because of our works. Not because of our behavior. Not because of our righteous deeds, right? Not because of that, no. But because of his own purpose and grace. Which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Again before creation. Before time was created by God, he had already purposed to show his grace to us in time so that we could be saved. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Peter, an apostle, so Paul's not the only guy who's saying this, right? Another apostle is saying this. Peter, an apostle, Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, that means chosen, chosen, exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Aha! Aha! See, God looked down the corridors of time and saw who would believe. No, no, no. Remember in Romans 8, I explained the difference between omniscience, God knowing all things past, present, and future, the actual as well as the possible, and foreknowledge, which is referring to God previously relationally knowing us before we ever heard the gospel and responded to it. in God's foreknowledge, his previous relational knowledge of us. And then in time, it came about in the sanctification of the Spirit, being set apart from our sin and being made alive in Christ unto an end. For obedience to to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. He continues, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, remember that word, his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. who brought it about? God did. He caused us to be born again. We didn't decide to get born again. He caused us to be born again. Wow. It's just piling up, isn't it? Divine, sovereign election. God choosing before time to pour out his grace and his mercy on certain individuals, but not on all individuals. And that's just a sampling of such verses. By the way, let me just give you a, a, a quick warning. I, I don't intend to cover both sides of your insert. So you, you don't, we don't want to get you know another five minutes. It's like, wait a minute. He hasn't even got to the first point yet. How's he going to get through the whole I don't intend to get through the whole thing. I, I want you to bring this back with you next week, and we'll you know finish it out. But... So that's just a sampling of such verses that stress God's divine sovereign election. And and what this is exactly what Paul is speaking about when he said that God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. And what God meant when he said, I loved Jacob and not Esau. So throughout chapters 9 through 11, we have to keep in mind what Paul is doing and, and what he's saying and... And avoid complaining about him not answering all the questions that we would like him to answer. It means establishing this fact that the gospel of justification by faith is not in contradiction with the Old Testament that the Jews, you know, so highly valued. It wasn't in contradiction with that uh, fact that, you know, God had a chosen nation. no. He's also saying that the Jews of his day were in error. They were in error when they considered themselves as God's select people, and that God wasn't interested in the Gentiles. And that's what they thought. In fact, God is going to save Israel. And if the Gentiles are part of anything, it's just that they'll become our servants. You know, and he's saying, no, you're in error. In verses 1 through 13, he's made the point that God always works in accordance with With his sovereign plan of election. And and then in the following verses, he he shows that the Jews would be wrong in arguing that according to what Paul teaches, it would mean that God was unjust or unfair. That's the sermon title, Is God Unfair? So understanding this will help us deal with why he doesn't answer some of the things we'd like to see him address. And in chapter 9, Paul's simply arguing for God's absolute freedom in choosing whom he desires and does not specifically address the issue of human choice. He doesn't even address the issue of faith, really, in chapter 9. He will address it, but he doesn't address it in chapter 9. He's focusing on God's sovereign, free plan of election. And... You know, if God is free to do what he chooses, and if all who are saved are saved because of God's predetermined plan, as modern people, listen, as modern people, we may conclude that his plan makes us nothing but puppets. We're just like dangling on strings, and God's just doing that, you know. We're nothing but puppets. And that would be unfair. That would just be unfair. That's, you know, not right. But we have to take note that Paul's not discussing here the human response side of the gospel at this juncture. His point is to present, uh, in the present text, is to present the fact that the relationship between God and sinners should not be thought in terms of what is unfair or what is unjust. Listen, we have no claim on God. That's what he's saying. We have no claim on God, no rights to demand anything of him. Uh, we are dependent entirely upon his mercy, his mercy toward us. And that's precisely what Paul clarifies in his next point in his argument in vindicating God's sovereign plan of election. So now we're to the first point on your sermon insert. Woohoo! Okay, God's purpose in election is to show mercy. That's what you want to write in. God's purpose in election is to show mercy. That's verses 14 through 18. So let's read those verses. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So it might be concluded by what Paul has said, that God's dealings with Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau were arbitrary and and that he was unjust, specifically in in how he dealt with Ishmael and Esau. And you may feel something similar. You may feel that it is unfair for God to make a choice of people without any foreseen merit or even belief in God, you know, that for him to make a choice of people based on just his choice? That doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. You know, that that, that God's unfair in doing it that way. And, and then you come to what Paul teaches and, and you're confronted with the fact that what he has said doesn't fit within your small little theological box. And you begin to ask questions like, well, is God fair in doing things this way? Is there, is, there any, is there some injustice with God because of this? How he does it? I mean, that's the question that you know, is being raised by the objector. Again, it's the objector. Paul knows what the objector is going to say. And so he raises those questions. And, and that's what he's doing here. And Paul uh, puts it in those words. He says, What shall we say then? Or it's kind of like he's saying, What would you say then, objector, to what I've been teaching? Is there injustice on God's part? Well, their answer to that would be yes. That's unfair. Uh, These questions represent Paul's straw man, who who feels that what he has just said about God's sovereign choice makes it appear like God is unfair. I mean, how can that be fair that he just says, okay, Isaac, yes, Ishmael, no. Or, I love love Jacob, but I hate Esau. How can that be fair? He raises the questions that many have felt when confronting this passage, these truths. And Paul proceeds to reprove his objector. And he reproves such questions. He he wants to make it very clear that that people understand that asking such questions is not necessarily sinful, but to conclude a positive answer to such questions is sinful. It's wrong. And so his reproof comes in the form of a characteristic phrase that we've seen him use in the book of Romans. By no means. Now, your translation may have, may it never be. If you add a more paraphrase of it, it might be, God forbid. That's his characteristic response to the objector. So several times in the letter, we've already seen him use that statement. and, And it's always an absolute denial of what is being suggested By the questions. His statement implies that the objector has the right premise, but has come to the wrong conclusion. So, the right premise that the Jewish straw man has, from what Paul has said, is correct. That God's sovereign choice of some and not others was not based on human merit or belief, but rather on divine prerogative. The God chooses who he chooses. But the wrong conclusion would be to believe that this doctrine means that somehow God is unfair, that he is unjust in his dealing with sinners. And then in verses 15 through 18, Paul proceeds to explain why it is that we should not look at divine sovereign election and, uh, you know, conclude that God is unfair. And it begins with the principle He moves on to an inference, then shares an illustration, and ends with a conclusion. That's 15 through 18. Ready for part of that? (laughs) Okay, we're not even going to get through the first part of your sermon insert, just so that you know. The principle that Paul is saying, election is founded on God's, what's the word? Mercy. Mercy, that's right. Election is founded on God's mercy. So he states the principle this way. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now by quoting what God has said to Moses, the apostle takes the reader all the way back to the Old Testament and to the history of Israel, focusing on the incident where after God had brought the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and through the divided Red Sea, and then provided water out of a a rock, and sweet water instead of bitter water, and a few other miracles, they finally get to Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights, and, uh, and receiving the Ten Commandments from God, written by the finger of God on stone. And while he's up there, the children of Israel get impatient, And they turn to Aaron and say, hey, Aaron, I I think he's gone. We don't know what's happened to him. He could be already, you know, dead or whatever. So why don't you, you know, make us an image of the God who has brought us out of Egypt so that we can worship it. And they take all their gold and jewelry that they had gotten from the Egyptians when they left, take a bunch of that, and Aaron throws it into a pot, and they bully it down, and pour into a cast and it comes out a golden calf and then they begin to party that's what is described they begin to party sexual orgies and drunkenness and all of that and then Moses comes down the mountain he sees what's going on and he takes his 10 commandments and he throws it on the ground breaks it apart and says who's on the Lord's side come to me and the, the tribe of Levi comes over to him and he says now go through the city and start killing people Or go through the camp and start killing people. And they do. Uh, Many, many people die as a result of that. And he crushes up the the tablets and he puts it in water and he makes them drink it. And It's quite the story. They had rebelled against the Lord. They had said, we need an image of the God who brought us out of Egypt. And God, of course, one of the Ten Commandments was you shall make no graven image of me. No image can capture the reality of the one true God who is invisible. And then Moses goes back up on the mountain for another long period of time and receives the part two. Not part two, redo of the Ten Commandments on stone. And he comes back down. But that brings us to Exodus 33 and 19, where God said to Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And this highlights the point that Paul is making in this paragraph. God showed great grace and mercy to Israel when he did not destroy them all. I mean, that's what he could have done. Injustice, right? Injustice, Moses could have said, all right, Levites, kill every single one of them. And then kill yourself. <laughs> and, and, you know, God at one point told Moses, hey, just stand back. I'm going to wipe them out. I'll start over with you. And Moses, you know, interceded. And was like, if justice is what you want, I don't think you know what justice is. In justice, God would have destroyed them all. In, in the same way, God shows grace and mercy in electing anyone For all are deserving of his wrath. Why? Because they are sinners, right? They are sinners and they deserve his condemnation. Divine sovereign election then doesn't focus on justice as much on mercy, the mercy of God in choosing some sinners, some sinners for salvation. Just like he chose some of Israel, didn't kill them. Right? He chose some, not all. If it were left only to God's justice, all would remain condemned as sinners, but instead he chooses to show grace and mercy towards some, while others are left to the end which they themselves choose. Yeah, praise the Lord. Paul is driving home 2 subpoints. we We'll just end with this today. Paul's driving home 2 subpoints with this principle. That the election is founded in God's mercy. And the first point is the truth that God is sovereign and that because he is, he is also free to act however he chooses. Did you get that? God is sovereign, therefore he is free to do whatever he wants to do. Now, we may not like that. We struggle with that because we're not free. We're not free creatures. God is the only free creature. and He's not a creature. He's the free one, right? The one true God. And we struggle with that because we're not free. We're always making our decisions based upon our circumstances or what people are doing around us or having a set moral code by which we live. And we go through life reacting to what is going on around us. We react. God, however, is completely free. And he acts and does not react. Even when it appears like he's reacting in the scripture to something, he's only acting in accordance with his other attributes. His holiness, his justice, his power, etc., etc., We go through life reacting. He acts, and likewise, we don't like being under the absolute control of anyone. And so, when we're confronted with the truth that there is one free being, (laughs) and we are under his control, it's like I don't, no, I don't like that. I live in the United States. I'm a free person. I'm independent. You know, I pull up my own bootstraps. Who pulls up bootstraps anyway? But I'm free. And the, the second point that Paul is driving home in this principle is that God's election of people, is divine, sovereign election of certain people, is a matter of God's freedom to show mercy to some and not to others. And I know, people go, mm, I don't like that. Unbelievers definitely don't like that, but I know believers who don't like that. That God is free to show mercy to some and not to others. And if we want to, again, argue for justice alone, apart from mercy, then we'd have to conclude that no one would be chosen. And that we would all face God's wrath, for that is what we all deserve. Yeah? That would be justice. Do you really want justice? Do you want want to say that God is being unfair, that God is being unjust? No, be thankful that the principle of divine sovereign election is founded on mercy and not justice. Well, Lord, we are thankful that you are who you are, and you are different than everyone else. We are creatures created in your image, yes. Fallen from that image. But even before the fall, Adam and Eve were not God. They were created in the image of God and like Him in many ways, but will never be God. You alone are God. And you are sovereign over all. And you are free to do whatever you want to do. And Lord, you. Always do exactly what you want to do. And that includes the wonderful truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, which it sounds so so wonderful in the hearing uh, of us as, as believers, because we recognize that our salvation, being right with you was not in any way determined by what we have done or could ever do. It was not based upon who our parents were or our grandparents or anyone else. It wasn't dependent upon our behavior in any way, but it was always and only according to your sovereign purpose of election, your choosing. And it was in accordance with your calling, Your gracious drawing of a sinner to repentance and then giving them the gift of faith to believe in Jesus Christ. And we sit on this side of that, of the gospel, as as believers, and we rejoice in that. And yet we acknowledge that we at times struggle with the thought that there are those who are not called and not chosen and And what do we do with that? And how do we think about you in relation to that? Well, that's why you wrote this section of Scripture, so that we would know how we should respond. We'll see you for who you are. And we we should say we gladly acknowledge that, that you are who you are and you do what you want to do, and in your grace and your mercy you chose us. It wasn't because we deserved it. It's kind of like what you said to the children of Israel. I love them because I loved them. Not because they were great or powerful as a nation. No, in many ways, they're the least of all nations. And yet, you chose to love them. Make them your own. And that's what you've done for us. You've, you've, not, you've not chosen those who are rich and powerful and political and have... Uh, great power over other people. No, you've not chosen the the really intelligent people or the the people who, who consider themselves wiser than all others that think that they have the solution to all that's going on around us that causes us consternation. No, you didn't choose people like that. You primarily have chosen those who are weak and poor and powerless those who are thought of as nothing in the, in the sight of many in the world, and that would be us, Lord. That would be us. We acknowledge that. And we, we're thankful. We're just thankful that you chose us. Help us as we continue in, in this section of Scripture to take it all in and, to, and that it would re, result in what you intend for it result in. And that would be not only a better understanding of who you are, but a better understanding and appreciation and gratefulness for the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Lord, if it be so in your grace, if there's anyone in our midst on a weekly basis as we go through this that doesn't really know you, they maybe are religious, maybe they've thought themselves to be Christians and, and they're not. Maybe you'd point that out to them. And they would see you in a new and refreshing way and be thankful that you have been merciful to them to this point, but that you are then calling them, drawing them to faith in Jesus Christ so they might be saved, be made right with you through faith in Christ. So help us. Help me as one teaching through this passage to be clear and, and, uh, and concise as possible so that we might gather it in and then as, as we do, Lord, expand our box. Expand our box so that we'll not just have a comfortable God but we'll understand the awesome God that you are and give you glory as a result. Thanks for the food that we're going to eat uh, on the other side of the building, your provision of it. Thanks for those that have put it together for us. As we share that meal together, help us rejoice in you. You're good all the time. Praise your holy name. Amen.